And as we look to the Lord, let's look together at the word of the Lord in John 8. We're going to be looking at the very end of the chapter. We've been chipping away at John 7 and 8 these last few weeks. We'll finish the chapter today. John 8, we're going to start in verse 48 and read through verse 59, through the end of the chapter. John 8, 48 through 59. Uh, the disciple, apostle in the early church, John, wrote these words. Uh, but he wrote them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And so therefore, these words come to us today with authority, with power, the same kind of way as if Jesus were teaching these things to us himself. So let's hear together the word of Christ. John 8, beginning in verse 48. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me, yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews then said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him. And I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews then said to him, you're not 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the word of the Lord. Well, one of my favorite things to do is to have kind of a late night, lively conversation. Uh, and I got to have several of those this week. One of them was about this idea of neutrality. And it was a good conversation. We were saying, you know, that there's kind of this myth of neutrality. People say, let's kind of have a neutral position on these things. But there really is no neutrality, right? You, you're, no one's ever fully neutral. There's, there's always some sort of baseline worldview assumption that's pushing you one way or pushing you another way. Um, you know, even Jesus speaks to this in his Gospels. We all have a baseline. We all have a worldview. There's, there's, there's always something driving the way that we understand the world to be. And because of this, this is why these Jews and this whole set of conversation with Jesus, the Feast of Booths in John 7 and John 8, this is why they are responding so viscerally to Jesus here. Jesus is challenging their baseline He's challenging their worldview assumptions. He's challenging their understanding of the whole world, their core identity. The Jewish people were descendants of Abraham. 
They were uh, the Hebrew people of the offspring of Abraham. And they were very proud of that. And that was a big part of who they were. And, and what Jesus is really telling them here is you don't understand Abraham. You don't know Abraham. You're really not like Abraham. You're not of Abraham. In fact, as we looked at last week, he says, you're not of Abraham, you're of the devil. <laughs> and they're so offended by this, they're so taken back by this, that they just kind of jump into, well, we've got a name for you too. And so that's how the text starts today. They, they say, oh yeah, well, you're a Samaritan, which would have been a racial, derogatory racial kind of thing to throw at Jesus. And they say, oh yeah, well, you have a demon, Jesus. They just, just what, what, see, what sticks? What, what, can we, what can we do to discount this guy? We don't like what he's saying. And of course, Jesus begins to explain to them, no, I, I don't have a demon. All I am doing is I am doing the work of my father. I am, I am of my father. It's, it's actually, if you've paid attention over the last few months, it's what he does in all of these sections. He always points back to the father. Don't you see that the father has called me? Don't you see that the father has set the way for me? Don't you see that I am doing the works of my father? At one point here, he says, this is the same father that you say you have, and yet you don't see it. I am just honoring my father and you are honoring me. And then he says, because I honor my father, because I'm in the way of my father, if you listen to my words, you'll never taste death. What a promise that Jesus makes. Truly, truly, if you listen to my words, if you do my words, you'll never taste death. You, you will have the kind of life that overcomes death. You will have life that is in line with the father. If you listen to my words, if you follow my words, you'll never taste death. And their response to this... <laughs> They say, well, now we know you have a demon. I mean, even Abraham died. Even the prophets died. Who are you? Who, who do you think you are that you can overcome death? And what Jesus does and how he replies to this, fundamentally, when you understand it, will change the way that you read the Bible and you'll, you'll be able to understand who Abraham really was and you'll be able to understand who Jesus really is. So, those are really my two points, the, the real Abraham and the real Jesus. If you've studied the Bible, in many ways, the redemptive work of God began with the calling of Abraham. There were shadows of it before this, but the, the redemptive work of God, as we kind of study it and know it and can understand it, began when God called this man Abram. It was a verb in the land of the Chaldeans, but he was living at Haran at the time. And God came to him and he said, listen to me, listen to my voice, leave your country, go to the place that I'm going to show you and I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna make you great through your offspring. I'm gonna bless the whole world. I'm gonna bring a great blessing. And, and the, the saga of the story of Abraham goes on and he he. He shows him, God shows Abraham more and more of himself. He reiterates these promises to Abraham. And, and what God began to build through Abraham and through his word to Abraham was a people, the descendants of Abraham, a law, right? A code or a way of living, a history. There was a whole story of how God interacted with these people and a land, a place where God interacted with these people. And what Jesus is, is explaining here in John chapter eight is that all of this law and all of this history and all of this land and all of this 
people. It was ultimately pointing to him that that in a sense, God had called Abraham and had begun preparing the way for God himself in the person of Jesus Christ to visit humanity and redeem humanity. It was all pointing to, it was all focusing in on the person and work of Jesus. If you were here last week, I said that I think Paul, when he was writing the book of Galatians, was thinking about this teaching. Now, the Gospel of John, just to clarify, was written after the book of Galatians, but, but this teaching, these teachings of Christ would have been known in the early church. And, and I actually believe, just from reading Galatians and reading this, I think that Paul was kind of meditating on these same ideas when he was writing the book of Galatians. Last week, we talked about the, the heir and the son and the slave, but, but look with me at Galatians 3.16. This is, I have it up on the screen here. Paul writes, he's talking about Abram and who he really was and who his offspring really is. And Paul says, Galatians 3.16, now the promises that were made to Abraham and they were made to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring. And then Paul says something kind of amazing. He says, who is Christ? The promise that God made way back in the day to Abraham when he called him when he was living in the land of Haran, Abraham of the, Ur, Ur, of, the, of the people of Ur of the Chaldeans, when God called him and he said, I am going to bless you and through you and your offspring, I'm gonna bless the whole world. Paul is saying something amazing here in Galatians 3. He said, that offspring, that promise, way back when, I'll tell you who the offspring, it's not offsprings, it's an offspring. And the offspring that's going to bring a blessing and a promise to the whole world is Christ. That's what Jesus is saying here in John 8. I am the fulfillment I am the one from the Father. I am the true son of Abraham. I am all of this land, all of these laws, all of this story, God's interaction with you. It's all about me. I am the fulfillment of all of this. Look at verse 54 and 55. This is important. Jesus says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing, right? I'm not just some guy that's going around saying I'm important. Rather, it is my Father, it's God who glorifies me. The same God that you say, he is our God, right? So this, the same God that you would say is our God, don't, don't you see, he's, he's designed all this. He's glorifying me, he's exalting me in this moment. But they don't see it because they don't know God. Verse 55, he says, but you don't know him. I know him, if I were to say I don't know him, I'd be like you, a liar. But I do know him. And I keep my word. And then he says in 56, he's basically saying, Abraham knew him too. Abraham saw, Abraham got it. Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. What Jesus is saying here is the thing that Abraham longed to see. Abraham lived his whole life with this covenantal promise in mind, with this offspring hope in mind. He longed to see the day of the promised offspring. But these people, they had a wrong view of Abraham. And therefore they had a wrong view of Jesus. <laughs> and therefore they had a wrong view 
of themselves. They couldn't see it. They, they couldn't see that this whole superstructure of land and story and law and people was, was all put together by God in order to be manifest and fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. They missed it. They missed Jesus. Therefore, they missed Abraham. They missed everything. Their baseline was off. And I think a good question for us to ask in response to this is, well, what about us? <laughs> what is your baseline? What is driving your life? What's driving your values? What's driving the decisions you're making? I mean, if somebody, let's just, let's just imagine this. If somebody were to come to us and say, okay, your whole life, your family, your culture, your identity, your work, you know, your children that you love, your marriage, it's, it's actually all about me. <laughs> it's all about me. That's in a sense what Jesus is saying to these people. Everything, everything that you found identity in, everything that you found life in, don't you see that it was all pointing, that it's all fulfilled in me? What if, what if Jesus said that to you and to me? Everything that we've anchored our life on, everything that we've centered our life on, do you realize that your job, you have that job for me? Do you, do you realize that I gave you those children for me? Do you, do you realize that all these friends that you have, they're, they're for me, these relationships you have, it's all about me. And I think, I think if we're really honest and, and, and someone stood before us and challenged everything at the core of our identity, most of us would, would probably respond not too differently from the Jewish people here. And say, so, well, what, what are you talking about? What do you mean? You know, Rene Descartes, he was a 17th century philosopher and he was living in an information age. It was a different information age. We think we're living in the information age and we are. But this was a kind of information age. It, it, it was a time when for the first time ever, newspapers were being printed and were widespread. So just think about that change. I mean, you used to have to go downtown, listen to the town crier, and if you missed it, you missed it. But now all of a sudden, there's newspapers being printed, there's many of them being published, stories are getting out there, there's books going around everywhere, there, people are learning how to read, and so information is everywhere. And another thing that was happening in Descartes' time is there was a lot of fake news. Right, People were writing things from one perspective. Somebody else was writing something from another perspective. There was slant, right? There was spin. And, and it was this time where nobody really trusted any of the news sources. Everybody said, somebody's got, this person's probably lying or maybe this person's lying. We, that sounds very familiar, right? And so Descartes said, how do I know what's true? Right? How do, how do I know what I can believe? And, he, and he, he began to doubt everything. He says, you know, the reason I know things, it's through my senses, but what if my senses are lying to me? And so he kind of doubted everything, even his own existence, until finally he kind of came up with this, and you've probably heard about this or read it before, like the, the fundamental assumption, the base truth, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. I know that I exist because I'm thinking, right? I know that fundamentally I am here. I don't know that anybody else is here, but I know that I am here because I can think. And I do think what Descartes was doing, what he rightly did is he described what is very true of most of human experience. We are aware of ourselves. We're 
fundamentally aware of ourselves. We're primarily aware of ourselves. And this is actually the great human flaw. This is actually our greatest problem. Because we start with this base assumption that I exist, it's very easy from that assumption to start to think that my story, my life, what's happening, how I'm interpreting the world and life is the most important thing. My story is the story. Now, we, we know that's not true. We know that we, we were not really at the center of the universe, but we all kind of live, we, we, we all kind of live with the assumption that we are. We think our story is the most important story instead of seeing ourselves as, some, as a part of some sort of bigger story. Instead of seeing ourselves as a part of something grander, bigger that's going on. And many of you have heard me say that I believe at the beginning of all things, the beginning of time, when God created the world, we weren't like this. We weren't fundamentally and primarily aware of ourselves. I, I believe that the creation narrative actually speaks of a man and a woman in the garden who were more fundamentally aware of God than they were of themselves. I mean, think of Adam. He just obeyed what God said. He didn't come to God and say, I need a helper. No, it was God who initiated that. God said, you need a helper. He just, he just was aware of God. He obeyed God. He did what God had commanded. And then when Adam sinned, what is God's response? I, I love this. The first thing that God says to Adam is, who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you were naked? In other words, how did you become so self-aware, Adam? When did you get so aware of yourself? Who told you that you were naked? All of a sudden, Adam was totally aware of himself and he was ashamed. And so he started covering himself with fig leaves. And I believe that from that time to this, we haven't been fundamentally aware of God. We've been fundamentally aware of ourselves. And when you're fundamentally aware of yourself, you have to cover yourself. You have to do something to make yourself feel important, to, to make yourself feel acclaimed. Your, your, your ego has this craving thing that it can't fulfill. It's insatiable. We start to cover ourselves with achievement and success and money and love and whatever else it is. Our ego is always crying out to us. I need more, I need more. You know, Soren Kierkegaard wrote in his book, Sickness Unto Death, that the normal state of the human heart, this is normal in sin, is to try to build its identity around something besides God. And this is why we're very ego conscious. You know, Kierkegaard talked about, you know, the parts of your body, you're not really aware of the parts of your body unless there's something wrong with them, right? Like probably not many of you thought about your toes today or your kidney or your liver, right? Those are important parts of your body, but you probably didn't think about them unless you are sick in your kidney, you know, unless your knee hurts or your elbow hurts. When something gets hurt, all of a sudden it, it's all you can think about. And Kierkegaard said, well, this is like our ego. <laughs> we think about it all the time because it's hurt. It's broken. We're, we're always having to cover it. We're always having to cover our lives and, and tell ourselves that we're important. And it's never enough. 
That's why Augustine said, my soul can never find rest. My soul, my ego, my identity, it will never find rest until it rests in God. Don't, don't, you, don't you see, when we're at the center of the story, there's never enough praise, there's never enough acclaim, there's never enough importance. We always need more. The, the only thing that will free you from that is when God becomes the center of the story. Your, your, your soul, no human life is big enough for your soul. Not even, not even the greatest achievement. It was a big weekend uh, for us. It's, it's a fun time of year. I love this time of year. Um, spring. I mean, isn't the spring awesome? School's finishing up. Baseball's finishing up for us. Uh, those both finished this week for us. And you know, at school this week, we had the E-Rivers Fun Run. And all the, all the little D's kids did a good job. But Rainer, our six-year-old, won. He won for the whole kindergarten. And man, you know what Rainer did all weekend? You know what he did all weekend? He wore his medal. <laughs> Everywhere he went, he wore that medal. Just so somebody may ask him about it. Where'd you get that medal, Rainer? Well, let me tell you, you know. <laughs> it was a great weekend. Rainer, he got to go to the pool, and that was fun. And then he had a baseball game. It was his last game of the year. And he played great. Made some great plays in the field, hit the ball well. But you know, all the boys, I mean, we had a great little team. They all played well and into the game, you know, the coach praised them all. And, and another little boy who played a great game, the coach gave him the game ball, okay? But it was an amazing weekend. Rainer got all this praise. I was telling him. But you know what Rainer said to me about 15 times yesterday after the baseball game? He said, Dad, you know, I should have gotten the game ball. Dad, I should have gotten the game ball. The last thing he said before he went to bed last night, I said, good night, son. I love you so much. He said, I should have gotten the game ball. <laughs> now, that's a little boy. It's easy to say, well, we're not like that. But you know where Rainer gets that from? He gets it from me. <laughs> There's a little of that in all of us. When we, when we become the center of the story, no life, I just want you to hear this. No life, no matter how successful you are, no matter how much you achieve, no life is big enough for your soul. Only God is actually big enough for your soul. You were created for his story, for his purpose, to glorify him, to be centered on him. Jesus comes to them and says, don't you see? <laughs> don't you see what the Father has done? All of this, all of this that God was doing through Abraham, it has all been centered on me and now God is visiting you. But they missed it. They had the wrong view of Abraham. They had the wrong view of Jesus and therefore they had the wrong view of themselves. They didn't understand the true Abraham and, and therefore they didn't understand the true Jesus, which is the second point. Look at verse 56 with me. Jesus says, your father Abraham, your father Abraham, he got it. He got it. He rejoiced that he would see my day. Abraham got it. He rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. We'll come back to that. So the Jews said to him, you're not 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, amen, amen. The truth, the truth. I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And when he said that, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. <laughs> Jesus has done it now. He just came out with it, right? 
when God appeared to Moses at the burning bush and God said to Moses, you are going to be the deliverer of my people. Go to Egypt and set my people free from the captivity of the Egyptians. And Moses says to God, okay, but who sent me? Who am I gonna tell them sent me? Who are you? What is your name? What does God say to him? God says, I am. Tell them I am has sent you. I am, I exist, God says. I am. Everything else in all of creation, everything else that you've ever seen, that you've ever known, that you've ever heard about, that you've ever tasted, you've ever touched, everything else is dependent. It's certainly us. Everyone here, you're an incredibly dependent individual. None of you would be here without your parents. Your parents wouldn't be here without their parents and so on and so forth. But even if somehow you could, just think about your own existence. If, if we were to just shut off oxygen in this room for like three minutes, you, you'd basically all die. We're so dependent. Food, temperature, we are so needy of so many things. But God says, and Jesus says here, I am. <laughs> I am. I mean, they're, they're worried about him seeing Abraham. Jesus says, you don't, you don't get it. No, <laughs> I'm not only before Abraham, I'm before everything. Paul says of Jesus in Colossians 1, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. I am, I am. The story's about me, your life is about me. That is the demand that Jesus was making on them and it's the same demand that Jesus is making on you. He came to them and they had this, all this history and all this, you know, all these achievements and all this land and all this law that they were so proud of and they were so proud of who they were and Jesus says, it's all about me. That was the demand. Don't you see? It's all about me. It's all focused on me. He was saying to them, you have to see that I am. I am what is important. That's the demand he was making on them. And it's the same demand he was making, he is today making on you. When Jesus presses you, when he comes close, when he reveals himself to you, you will either believe that he is the I am, the one who is independent, the one who is above all things, the one who all things are for, and you will listen to his word, or <laughs> you'll do what these people did. You'll pick up rocks to stone him. And you won't stone him, but you know what you'll do? You'll quit coming to church. You'll push away from Christian community. You'll try to change what the Bible says about things. You'll, 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 you'll only listen to the people that justify your position. When Jesus starts to press in on you, and he starts to challenge you, and he starts to convict you of sin, You'll either obey him, and hear this, he says, if you obey me, if you obey me, if you listen to my words, you won't taste death. You'll live, you, you'll, you'll be with me in glory. You'll either obey him or you'll get away from him. You'll get away from him. How, how are you responding to Jesus when he presses you? And what Jesus has said to them is, I know that you're not of Abraham. Here you are trying to stone me. But Abraham 
rejoiced to see my day. Abraham got it. Abraham longed to see my day. And then Jesus says something very interesting. Look at verse 56 with me. I've been thinking about this verse all week. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. He saw my day. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> How did Abraham see Jesus? You know, the, the, the Jews are coming to Jesus and saying, how have you seen Abraham? They're asking the wrong question. They should have asked the question, how did Abraham see you? How did Abraham see you, Jesus? How did Abraham see Jesus? Now, you could say, and maybe this is true, that Abraham's now in heaven, right? And Abraham's with God, and, and Abraham's seeing the fulfillment of the promise, and he is rejoicing. But I don't think that's it. I, if that was it, then it seems like this would say, he is seeing it now, and he is glad. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it as if Jesus is reaching back into the earthly life of Abraham. He saw it, and he was glad. When did Abraham see Jesus? When did he see the day of Jesus? Well, there's a pivotal moment in Abraham's life. If you know the story of Abraham, God called him, as we've said, and he said, you're gonna have this offspring, but there was no offspring. The wife of Abraham, Sarah, was barren. No offspring would come. And it was years, and, and God would reaffirm these promises, and there was doubt, and there's a huge, long story. But finally, the author of Hebrews says, when Abraham was as good as dead, when Abraham was 100 years old, finally the offspring Isaac comes, the offspring of the promise, the one through whom Obviously, Isaac would lead to Jesus. The whole world would be blessed. The offspring had come, and everything was great. God had fulfilled his promise. But then in Genesis 22, God says to Abraham in verse 2, Take your son, your only son Isaac, the son of the promise, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I will tell you. Now, if you have ever read the story of Abraham, you come to this point in Genesis 22 and you're like, what is going on? All of this time, we're longing for the promise. Finally, when Abraham's 100 years old and Sarah's wife is over 90 years old, the promised child comes, everything's going according to plan, and God says, take the son and sacrifice him. What's Abraham to do? If he kills Isaac, then the promise the purpose of his whole life, she said, Abraham got it. He's living his whole life with the offspring in mind. His whole, the purpose of his whole life is gone. But if he disobeys God, then he's disobeyed God. Obey my words and live. The same thing that's true today was true then. So how can he sacrifice Isaac on one side? And how can he not sacrifice Isaac on the other? And amazingly, here's the question. How could the offspring die <laughs> but the promise still live. And amazingly, look at verse three of Genesis 22. He obeys. Abraham rose early the next morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. He obeyed. How did he do this? <laughs> How did he do this? 
What was going on in Abraham's heart and mind? And, and the author of Hebrews gives us insight here. So flip over to Hebrews 11, have it on the screen here. But here the author of Hebrews is recounting this story. He says, by faith, when he was tested, Abraham offered up Isaac. And he had received the promise, was in the act of offering his only son. So he's setting the stage here. The very son of whom it was said, through Isaac, your offspring will be named. So the author of Hebrews is pressing the question. The promise is through the offspring, yet he was sacrificing, he was offering up Isaac to be sacrificed. But then in verse 19, here's the answer. This is Abraham, years and years and years, centuries before Jesus. And it says, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. He considered, he, some translations say reason, he understood that God had the power to raise the dead. Abraham, years before Jesus came, as he's considering his offspring, the one who the promise would come through, he considered that God, this God that he served, that he'd follow, had the power even to raise the dead. And he obeyed. He saw, if you will, the day of the Lord. He saw the day of Jesus and he was glad. The day when the offspring would come. And on our behalf, on behalf of self-focused, God-denying, our story is the story kind of people, Jesus would be the sacrifice. Jesus would be the one that the Father led up the mountain and crushed for our sin. Jesus would be the one that on our behalf, for our sin, died. But Abraham saw what is true, is that God has the power to raise the dead. And Jesus overcame death in his resurrection. He is alive. He has shown that he is the true offspring, that it's all about him, that glory and power and honor over all things, even death itself is his. And Abraham saw this and rejoiced. He longed to see my day. He rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Here's the question. Have you seen it? Have you seen it? God has authority over everything. God has authority over life and death and everything. God has authority over everything. He is the center. He is the one. And if you have, your life will be like Abraham's. You'll live for the Lord. You'll, you'll be able to obey him even when it doesn't really make sense. I mean, that's my question to you guys today. Is, is there anything in your life that proves that you're not the center of your life? That, that's the question. Is there anything in your life that proves that you are not the very center of your life? And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if there's no resurrection, then I am to be pitied. If there's no resurrection, are you to be pitied? I know that's true of Abraham. I mean, if there's no resurrection, if you didn't reason that God could raise the dead and Isaac would have died, he would have lost everything. He would have lost everything. He, he, he banked it on God's power over all things. 
And so he obeyed. He reasoned that God could raise the dead and he obeyed. But if God hadn't come through for him there, he would have been pitied. Is there any, would there be any pity? Would anyone look at you and say, oh my gosh, what a waste of life. Where they say, oh, well, you know, their Christianity was a little part of their life, but they're fine. I mean, is there anything in your life that proves, no, my existence is centered on Jesus, on the Lord. I'm living for him. It's not about me. It's not about my story. It's about him. It's about his glory. And if that's true of your life, that will shape the way that you live. One of the things that you're going to hear me talk about over the next few months is, is culture shaping discipleship. Are we following Jesus in such a way where he is at the very center of our lives? And if he is, you will live your life so differently that it will, I promise you this, it will just shape the culture. It will shape the world around you toward Jesus. Some of y'all have heard me tell this story, but I was having lunch one time with a guy that worked at the State Department and he just had like a job at the State Department. And he didn't like his job. He didn't like the people he worked with. He said, my job's bad. The people are bad. I don't know what I'm gonna do for the Lord. And I said, what if Jesus had come to earth and all he did was work for the State Department? Like, what if that's what Jesus did? Like, what if Jesus came to get a job at the State Department? What would have happened? And the guy said, I don't, I mean, I don't, what are you talking about? I don't know. And I said, it would have changed everything. Jesus didn't live in a special place. Jesus certainly didn't live in a place as cool as Atlanta with as much influence in, as Atlanta. Jesus didn't have some special job. You know, Jesus wasn't like some official or anything. Normal guy, very, very normal place. But his whole life, everything about him was resigned to the will of his father. And as he was resigned to the will of his father, he spoke, he lived, he did the works of his father and, and everything changed through Jesus. What if when we scatter, we are like that? What if when we scatter, we're like that, where we're totally resigned to the will of the Father, how God is gonna use me today? And I'm not saying everybody in here is called to plant a church or be a missionary. Some of you might be. But, but, but what if we just, when we scatter, we would scatter with gospel intentionality and say, I'm resigned to you today, Lord. However you wanna use me, it would be culture-shaping discipleship. And, and again, I'm talking about simple things. Last night I went to a party that some of our church members threw and it was awesome. And they invited neighbors and they invited friends. And they were intentional about the guest list and they served people with excellence and they were humble. And, and it just, that party, it wasn't a, they didn't like stop everybody in the middle of it and share the gospel. It was just, it was just a party, but the, the culture of it just, it felt Christward. That's what I'm talking about. I was having a conversation with a guy this week who's been successful in business. And he's like, I, I want to, to, to work my business in such a way that it would really change this industry. Again, he's not starting like a Christian bookstore. He, it, it's a, it, there's nothing to do with, the business has nothing to do with Christianity, but the way that he's running his business, it's just nudging the culture Christward. You know, even our involvement, our little public elementary school, 
just being involved with the PTA, just, just volunteering for things, just trying to get the Christians together to pray for the school. Again, nothing special, just doing normal little things that the school needs. Because a bunch of Christians are being intentional to do it, it's, it's nudging the, the school. You can, you can just feel it. You can just feel a difference in the school. It's nudging at Christ's word. Is that how we scatter? Is that how you're scattering? Here's, here's what it comes down to. Have you seen the day of Christ and rejoiced? That's what Abraham was living for. And so whatever God said, he was like, I'm gonna do it because I'm living for the day of the offspring. That's my life. That's what everything's about. Is that, have you seen the day of Christ and rejoiced? Is that what you're living for? The day that you're with the Lord, is your life centered on him? Or really, is it just, as I like to say, quoting David Foster Wallace, your own little skull-sized kingdom that you're living for? Are you, are you trapped in this little story? Or are you living for the story? Have you seen the day of Christ and rejoiced in it? Let's pray. Father, open our eyes, open our hearts, Lord. We get so caught up like these Jewish people. We're all like them in our legacy and our jobs and our importance and all these things that we're doing. And we miss the fact that you, the sovereign ruler of the whole universe, of the whole cosmos, Lord, it's, it's all about you and your glory. Help us to look to Jesus, to find ourselves in him and in his story, to see the day of Christ and rejoice. Free us. Free us, Father, from this self-centered autobiography, my story kind of life, and help us to get lost in the story of Jesus. What is truly everlasting, what is truly good and right and powerful. Give us faith to see these things. Give us hearts to believe these things, Lord. Please, Father. There's so much potential in this church. And I pray, Father, as we would be resigned to your will that you would change the whole city of Atlanta through people like us and through people in, in many other churches that love you. Give us faith, Lord, I pray. Help us to see the day of Christ and rejoice. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.